A Long Way Back to Zion, Book Three, The Light in the Book, Chapter One. For things will never be perfect until human beings are perfect, which I don't expect them to be for quite a number of years. Thomas More, fifteen sixteen. The New World, South Pacific Ocean, Year twenty one eighty two. Otto's air was coming to him in deep, gasping breaths. His shirt was soaked through, and he ran his forearm across his brow to keep the sweat from rolling down into his eyes. He stepped up to the line with the tennis ball gripped tightly in his left hand, and he bounced it three times. Exactly three times. The ball hit the little white line next to his left foot, then popped back up to his palm. If it didn't feel right, he would stop and start again. The ball had to hit the line every time in the center. He wasn't sure why. Then he tossed it into the air and he watched it lift, stall, and begin to drop. Again, if it wasn't perfectly tossed, he would start again, bouncing the ball three times and repeating the toss. He'd been perfecting his serve all year long, and everything about it had to be flawless each time. It was really the only thing that had gotten him all the way to here to the finals. His opponent, Takahashi, played a better game than he did, and he knew that going in. If he was to win, it was all riding on his serve. If Takahashi returned it, he would likely lose the point. And this was the point. The match had been going on now for three grueling hours. A slugfest. One deuce after another. As Otto's arm bent back with the racket, there was a resounding boom that seemed to shake the entire New Hope vessel. Takahashi's eyes left the court, as did the remainder of the spectators in the stands, searching for the source of the sound. Otto didn't falter, though. His serve was mechanical and precise. Once started, he carried it through. The racket snapped and the ball zipped across the court so fast that Otto himself couldn't quite tell if his serve had gone in or not. Nobody else saw it either. There was a hush that fell over the crowd after the boom of the jets passing. It lasted a solid 30 seconds. Otto could see the faces of the crowd etched in fear. Pale faces started to whisper desperately to one another, and a few people started to mill about in the stands. Okay, uh, a voice now over the loudspeaker. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe we'll take a 15-minute break in the match and we'll boom. Another plane broke the sound barrier too, flying away after the first, so fast that nobody saw anything but a gray-blue blur. Phones started to ring in the crowd. A woman gasped. Otto and Takahashi shared a look, both boys unsure of what to do. Please, ladies and gentlemen, the voice was anxious, almost quivering. Remain calm. We would ask that everyone make their way calmly out of the park. We will resume the finals on another day. Otto looked toward the crowd to see where his father was sitting. His father, Senator Blake Hess, was on the phone already. Those around him were standing, but he was still sitting. He held his phone to one ear, and his other hand was pressed to his forehead. Hess, 
Takahashi was standing at the net now, his hand extended toward him. Otto trotted forward and shook it. Good game, Hiroshi. Otto forced a smile. Something tells me we might not get to finish it. It's finished. The boy smiled back at him. I wouldn't have been able to return it even if I'd been looking. Otto wasn't sure what else to say. He just gripped Takahashi's hand a bit harder, and he nodded to him. There came a sudden realization to him that this may well be the last game of tennis he would play for a very long time. Maybe ever. Otto wanted to cry, but he knew that he shouldn't do that. Otto! His father was calling to him now. He held the phone away from his mouth, but it was clear that someone was still on the other line. Releasing Hiroshi's hand, Otto turned and he started to walk toward his father. Hess! Hiroshi called after him. Good luck! Thank you, Otto replied, a little awkwardly. He wasn't sure what else he was supposed to say. He was surprised that Hiroshi had said it in the first place. Hiroshi was one of his best friends, and he knew what Otto was planning, but he knew that his father was a member of the Utopian faction, and was a staunch opponent of his own father in the Senate. He knew the elder Takahashi had voted against the formation of the new military branch of New Hope. But that had been before. That had been the New Hope colony of yesterday. It had all been rhetoric, theory, and academic debates. The ideas and concepts had been just that, ideas and concepts. They had not been tangible things that could be argued and defended, but never really decided on with complete certainty. Now, though, things were concrete and plain. Nothing was theoretical anymore, it seemed. It was all very real. The threat of war hung over New Hope as certain as would a rainstorm. Even the Utopians wouldn't deny it any longer, now that they were feeling the moisture on their faces. The GNU was real. Even Otto's father, who'd always lent Kit Larson an ear when others wouldn't, seemed surprised when undeniable proof had been shown to them. Otto knew that everyone had only been hoping that it wasn't true. Even as it became more and more clear that it was likely, nobody had wanted to admit it. It conflicted with their view of what the future was supposed to be. The future was always meant to be peaceful. War was not something that was supposed to happen. It had been a staple of the old world. In the new world that New Hope was to build, war wasn't supposed to exist at all. And yet, here it was. They're calling an emergency session. Yes, right now. Otto could hear his dad talking on the phone. Now he was on with Otto's mother. He couldn't hear her replies through the phone, but he knew she would be frantic. No, no. Yes, he's with me. They were outside the park now, leaving behind the tennis courts, walking through the grand arching entrance, and making their way down the long walk back toward the Senate grounds. Otto looked away to the gigantic harbor in the middle of New Hope. Nearly half of the ships were gone already. The Navy and the Ravens had wasted no time in mobilizing after attack. The Ronin, a refugee ship, had been blown up only three days outside of arrival from New Hope. Undeniably, it had been the work of a fighter plane, and the GNU was the only organization outside of New Hope that had such capabilities. There was a video of it. Concrete evidence. The question of war was before the Senate, but the Navy and the Ravens were not waiting. 
three of the four carriers were gone. Most of the ships were gone, too. Half of the submarines were on offense now, the other half prowling around New Hope like terrible leviathans, ready to strike any unfriendly vessel that got too close. Otto had even heard that the little escape pod submarines were being squared away and supplied in case evacuations were required. As far as military manpower, only the reserves remained, as well as the new branch of the military of New Hope. They were called Marines. The question of war was to be held today, despite the stalling of several senators. But, by land and by sea, the ravens were already flying, planning operations, and putting boots in the field. Otto's father had told him that, even if the Senate voted down the motion on war, the ravens would go on fighting anyway. They'd be gone until the war was won, or they were dead. The ravens' garrison at the north end of New Hope stood nearly empty, stripped of all arms and armor. They'd even taken all but one of the armor-printing machines with them. Only a few very old ravens remained to train the marines, and Kit Larson brooded in the command center day and night with a team of thirty sailors for communication, logistics, and coordination. No matter what the Senate decided, the ravens had made up their mind already. Otto thought that the booming of the jets was meant as a parting word of defiance from them. In fact, he was almost certain that Kit Larson had commanded it. He knew that if they voted down the war measure and actually commanded Larson to cease military operations, they would have to physically go into the garrison and arrest him to get him to stop directing his troops. Even then, he would probably tell them to kill him. Such was the political schism that existed now in New Hope between the Utopian faction and the newly dubbed Warmonger faction. Otto's father, Blake Hess, wore his political opponent's label for he and his allies with pride now. The elder Hess had even made a sort of mocking symbolic animal emblem for his new faction. It was a dove clutching a hand grenade. Otto had worn it on a t-shirt to the tennis match that very day. Nearer the rim of the Horseshoe Harbor, Otto could see 20 marines in an open park. Once, the park had been used for recreation. Families would go there to play, meet, or walk dogs. Women would do yoga. Men would play baseball, even football sometimes. On one end, there was a stone amphitheater built from big Alaskan rocks and meant to look natural. Otto had watched Hamlet performed there when he was a child. And another time, he'd gone with his friends to a concert where loud rock and roll music from the old world had been played. He'd kissed a girl for the first time between one of the gray boulders that sat on the field. Now, twenty young men were being barked at by a tall, aging raven with only one eye. He shouted to them, cursed, and he asked them if they really wanted to be marines. Dad? Otto paused, watching the spectacle. One of the boys threw up, but kept on doing burpees all the same. I don't know, sweetie. He was still talking to Otto's mother. Well, I've got to go there now. I mean, he can come meet you. Dad. Otto spoke more loudly. His feet felt fastened to the earth. Yeah, okay, just a second. What? What is it? His father looked at him, then down to the park, 
out to the harbor and to the sky again. I've got to get to the building, Otto. I'm, I'm sorry, we have to go. I know, Otto nodded. They need you in there. Honey, honey, hang on for a second. His father nearly yelled at her through the phone, and then he walked over and he stood a little closer to Otto. What's up, bud? I'm going to join. Otto glanced to the Marines, and then back to his father. What? The color drained from his face. Otto watched it go. He'd known this would be his father's reaction. Because he'd known, he'd said nothing of it, but he had decided. I'm going. It's something I have to do. Otto tried to do his best to sound grown up. He just ended up doing a sort of impersonation of his father's tone. He didn't cry, but his eyes became glassy with emotion. You, you... Otto knew his father wouldn't have the words. His phone was beeping now, another call trying to come through. He could still hear his mother's voice fretting openly through the phone, but she'd been talking the entire time and hadn't heard what he'd said to his father. Tell mom. Otto indicated the men in the yard below. I'm going right now. I'm sure I'll see you guys before anything. Just just tell mom, okay? Otto didn't wait any longer for a response. While his father looked on, he turned and he jogged toward the field, his racket bag still slung over his shoulder. Blake Hess was still shaking when he stood to address the room. The Senate was a round building with a domed roof. Great white columns circled the perimeter, and within each was the chiseled likeness of a single historical figure, hands held aloft, as if they themselves bore the great weight of the building. Both heroes and villains, each pillar represented the great lessons human history had to teach. Confucius, Cicero, and Socrates stood shoulder to shoulder with Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, and Adolf Hitler, Genghis Khan and Gandhi, Julius Caesar and Elizabeth I, Hypatia, Cleopatra, Joan of Arc, Homer, Sophocles, and Shakespeare, Nero and Caligula, George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, Martin Luther and Immanuel Kant, Thomas Aquinas and Niccolo Machiavelli, a hundred others, each of them bearing up a pillar and integral to the structure. Truth be told, Hess had grown so used to the room in his six years as a senator that he didn't really notice them any longer. Today he did, though. He saw all of their faces as he walked out into the center of the room. They watched him with eyes just as probing and alive as the living crowd surrounding him. He cleared his throat before he started. I had... He trailed off before he could gather more words. I had prepared for this today, but you'll have to forgive me and allow me a moment. He looked upward to the dome, to the statues, to the other senators. My son told me only moments ago that he's joining the Marines. I didn't know he was planning on that. Silence from the crowd. Someone coughed. It makes sense, though. I should have seen it coming. Hess smiled sadly. Gentlemen, I believe that our children will be greater men than we will. I truly do. I know mine will. 
We have sat in this chamber for years now, making decisions of law and government. Before us, our fathers did the same. They argued, they planned, they debated. All the while, the world was burning. I don't know if we have done right by closing ourselves off from the world. There were murmurs in the crowd, mostly from the utopian faction, but no one spoke. Hess knew they wouldn't like what he had to say. In truth, he didn't much like it himself, but he'd come to the conclusion that it was the truth. Perhaps they were, perhaps not. But it's not the past I want to talk about. It's the future. We are at war, ladies and gentlemen. Whether or not you wish to hear it, it is the truth now. The GNU is not a fable or a myth. They aren't ghosts from the pages of a history book. They are real. They are real, and they're at war with us, just as they were over a century ago. He allowed the truth of the words to linger in the stillness of the room. We'd forgotten about them. We have forgotten so much of what we used to know. I'm as guilty of this as anyone, and I know that. I was just thinking as I walked up here that I never really look at the pillars of the room anymore. I know I always used to. I'm not sure when I quit noticing them. Hess motioned for his fellow senators to regard the likenesses around them. There's a reason we chose to set these figures into stone in this room so very long ago. Unlike other societies from history, we chose not to recognize just the heroes, but the villains as well. Why did we do this? I'm sure even now, some of you standing in this chamber are unaware of this. You're surrounded by these famous figures every day, and many of you don't understand why. They're a reminder of not only the past, but also our future. They're the truth of it. The truth of humanity itself. It was not only good men that shaped our history, but the bad men as well. We learn not only from mankind's crowning achievements, but also from its most sinister follies. And if there is a single truth that we have chosen to forget that we never should have, it's this. Utopia is not an achievable goal. Turning, Hess looked toward the utopian faction. He held his hands up as if to signal he meant no offense. He was met with scowls. We're not perfect. It's a mistake to believe that we're only the best of these statues and we're not the worst. Though well-intentioned, my fellow senators of the utopian faction are being led by a grave and erroneous notion that they can achieve something that no other human civilization has ever achieved. Our sins and our shortcomings are inseparable from us. We cannot shed ourselves of them as even individuals. How foolish is it then to assume that we may eradicate these same sins and shortcomings on the level of an entire society? I tell you, it cannot be done. His voice was raising now, hinting toward anger. This is a vanity we can't entertain. In fact, this is the very notion that drove the bloody machine of the GNU and the old world, and it's still driving them today. There was a rumble of outbursts beneath the great dome. Shouted curses and oaths were thrown at him. One man from the Utopian faction even stood up and had to be pulled backward by his fellows. I came here today to talk about war. 
Hess continued once the cacophony had died down, nearly shouting to overcome it. This was not the speech I intended to give, because I knew it would be considered impolite. After all, we're not supposed to tell someone that their notions are wrong. We're the offspring of a thousand thinkers, philosophers, and inventors. Our ancestors believed in the freedom of everything, especially when it came to ideas and science. That is the reason we achieve so much. But I cannot stand by and hold my peace in the face of this ridiculous notion. If freedom means anything, it means speaking the truth. And what I say is one of the most basic truths of all human history. Nearly every successful civilization understood this. We all know that we ought to do the right thing, but so often we act contrary to what is right. Because of that, this dream of a continued isolation and a utopia is a farce. The GNU will not stand by and allow us to coexist with them peacefully. If that is not clear to you by now, ladies and gentlemen, Hess couldn't help but scoff. Well, I don't know what I can say to convince you. Those of you who do understand that, however, you must vote aye the motion of war today. We have lingered long enough. We have twiddled our thumbs for so long that defeat may now be inevitable. That is why the ravens have already flown, without our blessing. They know this. They understand. We're outnumbered a hundred to one, maybe more. Our enemy abides by no rules of warfare. Our enemy will use our own moral rules against us. But we have no choice. There will be no end to this war until one of us is wiped from the face of the earth. That is not my opinion. That is what the GNU itself has said by its actions and its philosophy. There is no war over a border or dispute going on right now. This is not a dispute between sovereign nations. It is an existential threat that we must face. War is not a question of yes or no. War is upon us. If we shrink from it now, our entire history will be for nothing. What did our ancestors prepare new hope for if not to rekindle hope for humanity? This is it. Now is the moment. If we fail to act, even if we survive somehow, the GNU will burn up the whole of the earth until there is nothing left but them. Our colony, our people, this very building will be laid low. All of these statues will be forgotten and their lessons with them. Humanity will start once more from a place of complete ignorance and those of us that are left will be forced to relearn every horrifying lesson these figures represent. All knowledge from the dawn of recorded time will burn right along with the rest of it. Our ancestors refused to allow this, and we must now do the same. We must finish it now, or not at all. Turning on his heel, Hess made his way back to his seat, and he sat down. He eyed the utopians from across the room. He saw anger in some faces, lunacy in others. Some wouldn't meet his eyes. Finally, though, Takahashi stood. The man had been Hess's biggest rival for the past six years. The two were diametrically opposed on nearly every issue. Hess wouldn't say he hated the man, 
but their relationship was not one of friendship or mutual respect. The head of the Utopian faction, Takahashi's job would be to make his own faction's closing arguments before the vote, and Hess wondered what he would say. The man was a brilliant orator, not so good with the common people, but a master of political rhetoric. He had a way of saying exactly the correct thing, yet somehow coming off as genuine, as if the words and phrases weren't just talking points and slogans. Worst of all, Hess thought, was that Takahashi was probably more intelligent than he was. He said nothing at first, walking calmly out into the center of the room for his address. He, like Hess had, looked thoughtfully to the pillars that held up the building. He lifted his fist to his mouth, and he coughed to clear his throat. I have... He looked at Hess. The expression was something Hess had never seen before on the man's face. He always appeared as if deep in thought, but today he looked as if that thought had turned to sadness. In fact, it looked as if the man had been crying. I have more in common with my fellow senator today than I have ever understood before. It pleases me to say that, after six years of arguing with this man, today I have nothing to say. I do not speak for the rest of my faction, but for myself, I will vote aye on the motion of war. I pray that by doing so, I will in some small way help my own son, Hiroshi, who has, it seems, left to join the Marines today as well. He told me he felt he must. It would not be right, he said, if Otto Hess went away to war, and he did not. I have no words to argue against his decision, and I have no words to argue against the motion. I vote aye the measure of war. Chapter 2 The peoples of the earth are as trees, growing from a single seed to bear forth their fruits, each according to their own kind. As such, they come in many varieties. From mighty to trifling, these come into the world, and they grow. There are peoples who are like the oak, strong, hard, and enduring for long spaces of time. Like the cottonwood, some peoples grow large and broad, but their time on earth is much shorter than the oak, and they grow hollow and collapse in the space of a few decades. Still others, like the juniper, grow slowly and not so large, but live long enough to watch most others die out. Finally, a few cultures are like the yew, cypress, or olive, that can live a thousand years. Each of these, though, grows from a seed. For the differing groups of peoples of the earth, that seed is religion. No tree comes into the world with no seed, just as no people come into the world with no religion. It is the beginning of the growth of a people. The ideas that they share regarding morality and virtue dictate the roots that they will lay down as a culture. From those roots will grow the tree and the branches. But all is dependent on the seed and the trueness of its essence. The truer the seed, the better the tree may grow. Some may prove more resilient than others, able to stave off rot, fire, or infection. All cultures, though, 
in their course of time, will see the world pass them by, even though they stand for 5,000 years and see everyone else pass away around them, their time will also come. We know of only one tree that was and is eternal. The tree of life, which grew in the midst of the garden, stands alone, immortal, and hidden in the world. It is a tree outside our grasp as peoples of the earth. But this is for our own benefit. None of us, individuals, peoples, or cultures, were ever meant to endure eternally here in this place. And the trees will tell us this, if we will but listen to them. The Wet Mountain Valley, Colorado Noah glanced at the rifle slung off the pommel of his saddle, and he contemplated the meaning of war. He knew now that was where he was bound off to. He, the Texans, the Valleymen, and the Ravens were all going to war. He was going off to fight an enemy he'd never heard of before now on the word of New Hope and their Ravens. The way they'd explained it, it was necessary if Noah and the other men wanted to keep the women and the children safe. He believed them. He probably would have hesitated a year before and not wanted to get involved in such a thing, but he'd seen the evidence of the enemy in the empty stairs of the Mormon refugees. Their grief and desperation was as plain and poignant as anything Noah had ever witnessed. He'd even seen video evidence on a strange tablet device the Ravens had shown him. It was a video of a settlement outside Salt Lake City, where everyone, men, women, and children, had been slaughtered by a GNU death squad. If they didn't stop them in Utah, they would be next. Noah understood that now. He glanced again to the gun. The rifle had a new upper receiver now, chambered in thirty caliber and shorter than before. The upper was something the Ravens had given him. They had a wealth of thirty caliber ammunition that fit into the same magazines that the old five five six caliber rounds had, and Noah was glad of it. He'd run nearly out of five five six. The Ravens had also given him a suppressor that threaded onto the short barrel of the thing and an illuminated optic that got him on target much quicker than the old iron sights. The lower receiver, though, was the same one Evelyn had given him back in Galveston. She'd told him that they'd found the thing in a bunker, long forgotten, on a little island along the eastern coast. Noah thought about that. He wondered if whoever locked the rifle away in that underground bunker had intended anyone to ever find it. What would they have thought about this rifle of theirs going off to war with him? Noah wasn't sure. Looking up from the rifle to the road, Noah pondered the town ahead. It was their first step down this road to war. There were no large buildings in the town, and the small single and two-story houses and shops that had once stood there were all crumbling now. They fell back into the earth from which they were raised like the corrupted bodies of the dead. Noah had come to know that nearly everyone from the Wet Mountain Valley believed that the place was haunted by specters and ghosts. As he and the others rode horseback into the town, he could see why. 
He'd come to know much about other peoples since coming to this place, and the customs and cultures went well past belief in curses and ghosts. He felt his childhood shedding from him daily. It was as if all he'd ever known in his first twenty years of life was only a memory now, being faded out by the vastness of the world he'd seen so little of growing up. Only a short while ago, he'd never really thought about other peoples or cultures. He'd never known what the word culture had meant. Now, he saw it everywhere he looked, and he heard it in every conversation. The people he was riding beside were as different from him in habit and custom as the Llanos had been or the Night Watchers. Perhaps not as savage or horrible, but different all the same. To the same point, they were as different from each other as they were from him. Bear and his people of the valley wore plated armor as if descended from the ancient conquistadors who had named the range of mountains in which they lived. They were a self-sufficient people and military-minded. Friendly, yes, but wary of outsiders. Some were religious, others not, but all of them shared similar ideas on laws and morality. They traced their ancestry back to who they called the Patriots of the Second American Revolution. It had been a failed endeavor and a lost civil war, but they still held true to the ideals of those men, so they said. They toiled in the spring, summer, and fall, and then spent their winters snowed in fast in the Sand Creek Valley, rarely venturing outside of their communities, let alone the valley proper. They vaulted their dead into the caves of the mountain, and they built shrines to their warriors to keep their memories alive to their children. The Canyonites, Noah had thought at first, were like them in a way, but he'd been wrong about that. They were a savage people. They carried their dead and dying to the wilds and left them to carrion as their gods demanded. They worshipped the wolf and the bear, the sun and the moon, the winter snows and the spring thaw. Instead of a long philosophical foundation stretching back through history, the Canyonites' history was shrouded in mystery and magical myths. No one was quite sure how long ago they'd formed into societies, but the people of the valley had been in the mountains much longer, and they had watched the Canyonites emerge into the world. The Canyonites raided and stole as a way of life. Once Noah came to understand their ways, he likened them to the Anos. The only difference, as he saw it, was they spoke English and Spanish instead of the New World primitive gibberings of the Llanos and the Trackers. Then there were the saints of the LDS Republic. McTavish, Bear, and the Ravens called them Mormons. He found that some of them grinned at this moniker, explaining that not everyone was Mormon in the Republic, but Noah figured enough of them were that the title Mormons made sense to him. They looked unlike any people Noah had ever known, like humans from another time and place. They had a country of their own, a government, and a mostly common faith. They had arms and supplies that rivaled even the ravens. Noah could tell them instantly by sight, as easily as he could tell a Yano from, well, from anything else. Most of them were pale-skinned and fair-haired. All of them were clean. Their clothes were not homespun or pieced together from tatters. From what Noah could gather, they looked very much like society before the fabled chaos of the past. 
They were a paradoxical people. Their personalities were as smooth and clean as their clothing, but they were quick to be friendly. But they kept to their own camp, and they stayed separated from the rest most of the time. Today, Noah realized, was the first time he'd actually seen representatives from every group together. Many times, the people of the valley, the ravens, and the cowboys from Amarillo had gathered together all at once to talk. This was the first time the Morvans had agreed to a formal meeting with all the others. If Noah fit into any group, and he wasn't sure he did, it was his fellow Texans. The Amarillo men and their families were as close to his people as he could find in this strange place. They reminded him only slightly of the Texans from further south. For one thing, they were mostly a religious group. Noah hadn't seen much of that in Houston. In fact, Evelyn had been the first person he'd ever met who'd been outwardly religious. Until he traveled to Fort Amarillo, that was. Noah had discarded his old ratty wardrobe, and he dressed like his fellow Texans now, cowboy hat and all. He spoke with them the most, he ate with them for most meals, and he stayed in their camp most of the time. Evelyn and the ravens stayed there as well, though the tall, dark, bearded ravens kept to themselves almost as much as the Mormons did. He and Evelyn had spoken to them much over the past year. Well, Evelyn had at least. Noah, for his part, kept a respectful silence around them, unless they spoke to him first. It seemed that all of them eyed him constantly, sizing him up for something. Noah wasn't a fool. He knew it had everything to do with Evelyn and her brother. There were fifty of them now in this traveling troop, from all these groups. Noah and Garrett for the Texans, Makarov and Levi for the Ravens, and Bear and Nathan for the Valley. Of the Mormons, there were several. David, Noah thought, was their leader. He had four sons that were all around him, but Noah couldn't peg any of their names. The only other name he knew from that group was Cable. From what little he learned, David was civilian leadership, and Cable was a military man. The rest of the cavalcade was a mixed bag from all the groups. They had the numbers in case things got out of hand with the Canyonites. Peace had been established in the early spring, but no one really knew how much trust should be placed in it. Power had changed hands twice since Bohr was deposed, and to Noah's understanding, the new chief was not the same man who had called for peace. They all had a common enemy in the GNU now, though, the Canyonites included. Even if the Canyonites did not understand it, they were all on the same side now. The opinions on the group on the matter of the Canyonites were as diverse as their looks, but they all entered the dilapidated town square, and they rode as one. The Canyonites were already there, and there were only five of them. They sat atop feral-looking horses that pranced and skittered about on the road, and they gave Noah a bad feeling, sitting there astride their mounts, dressed mostly in hides. The skins were of every form, fashion, and animal. Every man among them had strange trappings. One wore a rawhide helmet with buffalo horns turned downward. Another carried a blag slung at his side that was adorned with long black hair. Noah found himself wondering if it was hair from a horse or a human. The man in the center wore a necklace of little talismans. There was a bear claw, an owl's talon, several feathers, 
and a good many human ears. As they neared, the sinner man came down off of his horse, and he strode forward several steps away from the others. Noah recognized him by his eyes as the man he had known from his stay in the dungeon of those people. His once cadaverous visage had been changed, but not so much as to make him look like a normal living man. He was rail-thin, but carried himself with swift and sure steps. Nothing moved more than his head. The movement was less the walk of a man, and more the movement of some sort of bipedal reptilian. At a dozen paces from the horses, he came to a halt, and he smiled hideously. Friends, he nodded. A sidewise motion of his head told the men at his back to dismount. My name is Vernon. I'm chief of the Canyonites. It was a simple introduction, but anything he did not say with his mouth, Vernon said with his presence. He stood half a head taller than his compatriots, and they seemed to take orders from reading the back of his head. One man led the skittering horses away. Two retrieved the table from the side of the ruined street and brought it to the center. One carried forward a fresh haunch of elk and placed it on the table. The last man drew a knife, stuck it in the table, and backed away. Come. Come and eat with me. Once all the leaders had shared customary bites of food, showing no intent of hostility by any party, they began to talk. First, the ravens, using vocabulary and information that went over Noah's head, laid out the situation for the Canyonites. Noah knew they hadn't made any progress. If he couldn't grasp what they were talking about, he knew at a certainty the Canyonites wouldn't understand. Secondly, the saints explained the threat to them. They had seen it firsthand, after all. Their people had already lost upwards of a million in the bombings and the raids. The GNU had dropped a nuclear bomb on what had been their capital city. Following that, death squads had been dropping in on other populations in droves and killing everyone they could find. The Mormons were putting up a fight and had licked several of the smaller death squads, but they were scrambling and they were being pushed back by the air campaign. The words of the saints registered nothing with the Canyonites. The Canyonites themselves had not been attacked. Why should they travel across the mountains and fight an enemy they had never seen on the word of strangers? It's been several years, Vernon, since I've seen you. Bear, who had been silent and sullen since the conference began, finally spoke up. You've more pieces on your chain than you had before. Each piece meant something different, and Bear knew the Canyonites well enough to understand them all. Most of them disgusted him. I wondered if you'd remember me. We were pups when we last met. Noah was getting the impression that the two were around the same age from the way they talked, though the man named Vernon looked more haggard than Bear did. These you would like for yourself, huh? He lifted his sharp chin and he fingered his grisly necklace separating out two of the ears. Your brothers. You keep them. It's okay. Bear's tone was sarcastic. I'm only holding them for another. Vernon let them drop. It's bad luck to keep the ears of an enemy you didn't kill. I was hoping to see the man here, but I only see his kin. At this, Vernon looked toward Noah. 
There was a silence that followed, in which only the ghost of the city stirred. He died. Noah turned toward the man. He wasn't a man to keep ears, though. I'm sure he'd want you to have them. Noah regarded the man coolly. Vernon, he'd noticed, was looking at him more than any of the others around the table, as if Noah was some sort of curiosity he couldn't figure. He was a brave warrior, like you. Vernon grinned. They told me you killed fifty men in the battle last winter. They said you died, but were born again in the blood and the snow. They say you walked with the spirits. Is that true? Bor sent you and another twenty out into the desert. Only you came back. How many did you kill? I didn't count. Noah's expression didn't even flicker. Yes, you did. Warriors always do. And you, boy, he pointed a long serpentine finger. It was almost an accusation. You are a warrior. You walked with the spirits and came back. Vernon ignored Noah's plain look of distaste and confusion. He bowed his head as if to honor him. Bear, you are a warrior as well. He repeated the gesture. I only know the two of you for warriors. The rest of you I do not know. Vernon leaned back easily, and he gestured to Bear and Noah with a motion of his hand. Bear knows me and my people as warriors. What does he say? Does he want my help? Does he want me to make an ally against these old world people from the great ocean? Bear grit his teeth. He did not want that. Noah knew this from the talks they'd had together before coming to meet the Canyonites. Bear didn't trust them, and Noah understood why. Savage peoples couldn't be trusted. He'd seen that much. On the other hand, the ravens stressed that they would need every fighting man they could get, even if it meant burying old hostilities. The Mormons welcomed any ally they could get, as long as it was agreed they would not stay in their land once the war was won. All of them aside, it had been Garrett Finney from Texas who had swayed Bear. A rattlesnake is a bigger threat if you don't know where he is. If you keep your eye on the little bastard, you can keep from getting bit. Garrett had brought that wisdom to Bear, and he'd agreed with it. Most of the men from the Sand Creek Valley would be going off to war and leaving families behind. Better the Canyonites go as well and not be a threat to the women and children. It's what's best for your people, Vernon. Bear kept his tone measured. These people won't stop once they hit the mountains. They're out for blood. Once they deal with one of us, they'll come for another. Our best chance to beat them is to fight together. You men need to think about your wives and your children. He directed the last sentence to the man beyond Vernon. Vernon grimaced and shook his head. Your brother spoke of women and children. He spoke of doing what was good for the people. Vernon drew deeply through his nose, and he spit a large wad of spit and mucus into the space between them. Clever talk for clever men is what I call it. His eyes narrowed into slits. You've been chief too long, Bear. You talk like an old man who's lost the strength of his arms. I've grown older. Bear agreed, but his voice was a throaty growl. Through wars with your people, I've been hit by five arrows. I've had my arm broken by a club. 
I've had my leg broken twice under fallen horses. But even on my deathbed, I could still take your head off your shoulders. Bear rested his hand on the pommel of his sword. Vernon's hands flexed visibly on the table. The bear growls, but his teeth are old and broken. Vernon shifted his gaze to Noah. You boy, speak plain to me. What do these old men want from me? Noah sat for a long moment before he realized that all eyes were turned to him. Despite all the great men at his flanks, he realized suddenly that he had more sway over the man than anyone. He was the hero of the winter battle. He was the boy who'd been reborn in the blood and the snow. He was the one who had led Boar's men to their deaths in the desert. He had walked with the spirits. Noah took a breath and gathered his words. They want your blood, your bows. They want your war clubs and your wolves. The quiet words resounded in the stillness of the air. They want you to spill blood with us. As Adam clutched her hand, Evelyn watched Noah through misting eyes. He mounted a skittish buckskin and whirled him in a circle. Around him was a motley collection of men. Vernon and the Canyonites had insisted on riding with Noah. Because it had meant another two hundred or so fighters added to the cause, Noah had agreed. The Canyonites were painted for war, and so were their horses. Brilliant colors of red, black, yellow, blue, and green would have made them look comical if they'd not been so terrible. They carried bows, clubs, and ancient firearms brought out from storage now that there were some ammunition available. Noah wore a plate carrier that the ravens had given him. Holstered in the front of it was a high-capacity pistol, also a gift from the ravens. He'd left his 1911 with Evelyn. Beneath the pistol on Noah's vest sat a row of six spare magazines for his rifle slung off the horn of his saddle. On the opposite side of the saddle from the rifle was a quiver of arrows, and in his left hand was a compound bow to replace his old stick and string. He'd traded for it with one of the Mormons, and it hadn't taken him long to become deadly with it. The ravens had told him to forget the bow, but Noah had insisted on taking it along. With him were Garrett and twenty other Texans, a strange mix of Western and modern. Most of them now had stolen GNU plate carriers and semi-auto rifles, but underneath they were garbed in their attire they'd arrived with. Cowboy hats, button-down shirts, pants tucked into high-top boots of leather, and spurs faintly jingling in the still morning air. The whole troop was preparing to ride out. Noah kicked the horse over to where she stood. He opened his mouth to speak, but for a moment nothing came out. There was an immeasurable ocean between them already, and he hadn't even left. I guess we'll cut south through the great sand dunes, Noah explained clumsily. Fastest way out, then we can strike off toward the southwest. Evelyn shook her head in understanding. She knew the plan, had heard it two or three times. The Texans and the Canyonites were taking the southern road, down through New Mexico and Arizona, then back up into Utah to a place the Mormons called Moab. As light cavalry, they would harry the GNU death squads peppered in northern Arizona and southern Utah. 
The Valleymen and the Mormons were going north to Wyoming. Then they would split. Bear and the Valley Guard were to conduct a guerrilla campaign against the GNU in northern Utah at a place called Cache Valley. And Cable Olson and the Mormon Army were headed to Ogden, where intelligence said the largest concentration of GNU soldiers were gathering. The Ravens were going separate directions as well, to take the fight directly to the GNU leadership. They wouldn't even tell Evelyn where. Knowing the plan didn't make any of it easier. Noah would be hundreds of miles away to God knows where, and she'd be left here in the valley with Adam and... We'll be here when you get back. Evelyn forced a smile. You watch your back with him. She lowered her voice and she nodded toward Vernon and the Canyonites. He's just a killer, and he enjoys it, Noah. Yes, ma'am. That's a good thing we're off the war, then. Noah didn't look behind him. He locked eyes with Evelyn, leaned down from his horse, and kissed her without warning. She was surprised for a moment, and then returned the kiss to him. It was their first intimate moment in a while. She'd been distant for the last few weeks, she knew. Noah hadn't complained or grumbled about it. He'd been as busy as she had with all the preparations for war. As she felt his lips press hard against hers, though, her heart burned for him. I'll be careful. I love you. He broke his kiss, pulled backward on his mount, not daring to stay any longer, and then he whipped away. Turning his horse around, he trotted off down the trail with the Texans and the Canyonites falling in around him. Evelyn watched him go, too choked with emotion to say anything. She gripped Adam's hand tightly and placed her other hand pensively over her belly. Evelyn couldn't say why she'd not told Noah about her suspicions before he left. Perhaps she was worried it would cloud his mind and make him vulnerable when he needed all the sharpness and clarity he could get. Maybe she was afraid it wasn't real and she was dreaming it. The fear of the unknown had kept her silent. She told herself the nausea and sickness that had struck her that morning and other days preceding was her fear of Noah leaving, dying, never coming back. She told herself the small, almost imperceptible swell in her belly was from food and inactivity over the last few weeks. She told herself all of these things, but her heart knew the truth of it. As she saw him disappear around the bend of the mountain trail, a gasp and a wash of tears escaped her. She hadn't told him. What had she done?